Today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Give us ears to hear your truth, and eyes to see the needs around us as we draw close to you. May we thirst for the water that your love brings us. Open our hearts, change us from within by the open word. Jesus says, put away your sword. Don't you understand? I could call down legions of angels. See, Jesus was in charge even when they came to arrest him. He was doing the Father's will, and he knew that he had to go through that. The light is always prevailing over the darkness, even when it seems that the darkness is winning out. For these disciples, they didn't understand. These guys came, and they arrested Jesus and took him away, and they thought for sure the darkness was winning. Jesus is losing. They didn't realize, no, Jesus is still in charge. It was a dark moment when Christ was taken away to be tried and crucified. Imagine how dark that night must have been for the disciples. Their leader and friend, who had completely changed their lives, was now being ushered off to his death. As Pastor David illustrates in today's message, they never had any reason to fear. If they fully had grasped who Jesus was, they would have known that he was in control and that his light would prevail over the darkness that surrounded them. Now here's Pastor David with today's message entitled, Light That Prevails Over Darkness. a real quick question uh, as we get into the study this morning. Uh, how many of you have a flash dark? A flash dark? Anybody? Anybody? Got a flash? Well, how many of you have a flash light? How come you don't have a flash dark? It's because it's an impossibility. There is no such thing, nor can there be, a flash dark. Because darkness can never and will never prevail over light. Light may be absent, but it's not because darkness overtook light. You understand that? That it is simply the absence of light that darkness even exists. Light will always prevail over darkness. There's no doubt about that. As a matter of fact, the very definition of darkness, according to the web-based Merriam-Webster dictionary, is devoid of light, not receiving, nor reflecting, nor transmitting, nor radiating light. Another way to look at it, just real simple, darkness is simply the absence of light. That's what darkness is. And this is true all the time. Light doesn't appear because there's an absence of darkness. Darkness appears because of an absence of light. And that very concept, really, you need to understand the fullness of it because, again, when we look at all of this, this idea of light and, and darkness, 
you need to understand that it's not a, a, a yin and yang thing, you know, light on one side and dark on the other, nor is it a Star Wars thing, let the force be with you, or the dark force or the light force. No, none of those things. Light comes into the picture and drives darkness out. But you know what? Light does not exist on its own. When light's removed, guess what happens? Darkness prevails. But again, the, for, the, for the light to happen, for the light to be present, there needs to be a source of light. Now that source, it, it's a, in, in a physical sense, we might think of such things as, well, the, the sun and the stars that are radiating light. We might think of a candle, you know, a candle in, in, a, in a dark room, an absolutely black room, a small little birthday candle gives out a whole lot of light when it's completely dark. A flashlight, all these kinds of things. But much more than any of these, today we're going to be speaking about the one who truly is the light of the world. Now humanity, left on its own, guess what? It always remains in darkness when it's left on its own. And although darkness cannot ultimately prevail over light, we see that battle of darkness trying to cover up light all the way from creation on. We understand that, we see that. There is in the garden uh, there, the light was shining brightly, but the serpent tried to come in and overtake the light with darkness, and it seemed to work for a season until God brought back the light that removed sin. The light came through the work of redemption. Now we are in Luke chapter 20, and by now, if you know that we are in Luke chapter 20, and if you've read ahead, you're wondering how in the world is he gonna tie this in with what we're looking at this morning? Trust me on that. Luke chapter 20, we finished 19 uh, last week, and here in Luke 20, we're working through these, literally the last days of Jesus' earthly ministry. And as enemies of God were working every way that they could to come against Jesus, they came and they tried to literally snuff out the light of the world, the light of God. And the battle throughout this week, as we go through these next few chapters in Luke, we're going to see that the battle grows more and more intense as darkness tries to overcome light, but darkness cannot prevail over light. Light will always prevail over darkness. During this time, with all of these battles, you need to realize Jesus doesn't back down, he doesn't back away, he doesn't slow down, he doesn't give up at all because he knows that, again, his power comes through the Father and he knows that the greater source is within him. He is that great source. He is the light of the world. And so he continues to shine that light for the Father's glory in all of the situations that we're going to be looking at. He shines the light of the Father's glory for the people to be able to see in order that there would not be any excuse. People are without excuse because the light has shined on the people of darkness. Some beheld the light, some rejected it. Now at the close of chapter 19, Jesus had entered into the temple. He ran off all the money changers, all the merchants that were again making his father's house a den of thieves. And so now as we move into chapter 20, Jesus begins to teach the people. And as we shared last week, after he had cleansed out the temple, he began teaching the word of God 
in the house of God. He taught inside the temple grounds proper as well as teaching out on the southern steps. His father's house now became Jesus' classroom. And so here we are, Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, as Jesus begins teaching. In verse 20, we read these words. Now it happened on one of these days as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel that the chief priests and the scribes together with the elders confronted him and spoke to him saying, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? You need to understand, they didn't come up to him and say, hey, listen, hey, Jesus, good to see you, man. Can, can, can you tell us what authority who, who, who gave you the authority to be? No, these guys came in and they were, they, they were vehemently angry at him. And they came, who gives you the authority to do what you're doing? Now, what things was he doing? What things were they referring to? Well, there's no doubt the fact that he had gone through and he had cleared out all these merchandisers within the temple. And remember, just as we shared last week, these high priests, all the leadership, they were making money there at the temple, hand over fist, as they were ripping the common people off. And Jesus threw them out. But what's the other thing? He is now teaching inside the temple. Who gives you authority to teach inside this temple? They wanted to shut him down any way that they could. They saw how attentive the people were to his teaching, and however, if, if, if they could get him on a technicality, those actions of purging the temple without the authority of either the Sanhedrin or the temple police, the, the idea of teaching there in the temple without the blessing of the high priest, they could have uh, at least had him removed or at, at the most, they could have had him charged with blasphemy. You're in here, you're, you're speaking the word of God and you don't have the authority you don't have the authority, apparently, of God because you don't have the authority of the high priest. And of course, that's the only way that the authority of God comes through, was through the high priest. That's what their thinking was. But Jesus had a much greater authority. Their argument would have simply been, no priest or, or priestly court gave you any authority to do what you're doing today. Therefore, you're moving outside of the will and the purpose of God. You see, darkness was trying to overcome the light. But remember, darkness cannot and never will prevail over light. Jesus responds to them actually with another question. Look at verse three. In verse three, he answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Now you may or may not understand the difficulty surrounding that question, but he put this question to these religious leaders and they knew exactly the power of that question. Now Jesus wasn't a priest. He had no civil, he had no ecclesiastical authority as a Jew and yet here he is, he's literally taking control there in the temple. And don't forget, his authority was from the Father but right now was not the time for that discussion so Jesus redirects the question about authority to ask the question about where John the Baptist had received his authority. Verse five tells us that they then began to reason among themselves. They saw the difficulty of this. If we say from heaven, then he's gonna say, well, why then did you not believe him? But if we say, well, it's only from men, well, all the people will stone us. 
for they persuade, they were persuaded that John was a prophet. It's kind of a difficult situation right here. For the people of Israel, John the Baptist had been a true messenger. He had been a, a prophet sent from God to the people. No one, absolutely no one, had come into Israel for the last 400 plus years who had the Spirit of God upon them like John the Baptist. No one had come as a prophet of God to say to the people of Israel, thus saith the Lord, since the writings of Malachi, which were about 400 years prior to this. There had been a long, dry season for Israel away from the things of God. Oh, there had been the Maccabean revolt that happened around 160 BC. But again, that, that, that was a political, that was a military thing. It wasn't really a spiritual renewal and revival that happened with Israel. But now here comes this man out in the desert wearing these camel clothes with breath that tastes like locusts and honey. And he comes and he begins proclaiming the word of God to them. And he's not just proclaiming, just, hey, hey, God is love. No, he's saying, you need to repent. You need to repent because the time in the kingdom of God is at hand. You see, his message wasn't a feel-good message. It wasn't a seeker-sensitive message. He was just telling them straight to it, look, you've got to repent. You've got to turn from the things of this world and turn your heart and mind and life toward the things of God because judgment is coming. You need to be ready. When John came, his message and his actions were different from anyone that they had heard of for over 400 years. It was totally different. Rather than a military commander, he comes in as the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He called for a spiritual revival, and the people began flocking to him. It's interesting. Sometimes we're afraid to speak the truth because we're afraid that people won't receive the truth. But when John spoke the truth, the people who were hungry for the truth flocked to him. Hundreds, thousands that were coming to John being baptized at that point in time. Verse seven, going back here to the battle that's going on with all of these religious rulers, these chief priests and these scribes, there in verse seven says that so they answered him that they didn't know where it was from. What an what a odd response. But Jesus comes back to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You see, it's not that Jesus was avoiding the question or that he was afraid to answer. It's simply that Jesus would not be put under the microscope of any man's questioning when he knew that it was coming from a false motive. Perhaps you, just as a Christian, I know me for a pastor, there's a lot of times people will come up and say, you're a pastor, aren't you? And then suddenly they come up with these weird questions. You know what, if it's, if it's the right motive, if it's the right heart, I have no time sitting down with someone, opening up the Word of God and, and sharing what the Word of God says. But when you realize, no, they don't, they don't have a real motive. They're just looking for, they're looking for an argument. They're looking for a debate. And more often than I say, you know what, uh, I'll get back with you on that. Or, hey, man, the Word speaks about that. You ought to look at the Word. I, there's no sense in wasting time. So I, I know exactly what Jesus is doing here. These guys are asking with a false motive, and so he gets away from the question. That's why we find in nearly every case, as these Pharisees and as these Jewish leaders come and they put a question to Jesus, he usually responds to them with a question. So again, he just flips it back on them. Jesus, with the Father's blessing, 
Again, he, he was always in charge whenever his accusers came against him. Remember, the light always prevails over the darkness. Jesus was in charge even until the end. Jesus allowed them to arrest him. They, he allowed them to put him on trial. He allowed them to crucify him. And he allowed it on the right day and at the right time. You remember there in the garden when uh, uh, Peter drew his sword and tried to take off Malchus, the, the high priest's servant, tried to take off his head and he missed, got his ear. Jesus says, put away your sword. Don't you understand? I could call down legions of angels. See, Jesus was in charge even when they came to arrest him. He was doing the Father's will and he knew that he had to go through that. The light is always prevailing over the darkness, even when it seems that the darkness is winning out. For these disciples, they didn't understand. These guys came and they arrested Jesus and took him away and they thought for sure the darkness was winning, Jesus is losing. They didn't realize, no, Jesus is still in charge. For now though, since the Jewish leadership didn't answer, Jesus took this opportunity to shine a little bit more light into the situation. And he did it by way of a parable. Look at verse nine. Then Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard. He leased it out to the vine dressers and went into a far country for a long time. Let me stop right now. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is quite often referred to as a vineyard. Uh, as the Lord's vineyard. Unfortunately, it, was, it wasn't always a pretty picture that uh, they painted of that vineyard. The, the, the picture of the vineyard of Israel was usually painted about like my grapevines look at my house. They look like they're about to die. Uh, and, and that was the picture of Israel almost always as Jesus brought in or as the word of God, as the prophets declared these things about Israel. In Psalm 80, in Psalm 80, it speaks of, uh, again, Israel being a vineyard, but the vineyard walls had been torn down. And so everybody that went by was able to just steal the fruit from that vineyard. It also also talks about how the wild boar could come in out of the forest and feed himself there at the vineyard. There was no protection, there was no covering of that vineyard. And again, speaking of Israel, because they had backed away from the Lord, the Lord's protection was no longer on them. Isaiah chapter five said that after the owner had planted a vineyard, it only yielded wild fruit. None of these references are good. They're all about Israel over and over. Israel was the Lord's vineyard, but it wasn't a pleasant vineyard. Do you remember the earlier parable when we looked at chapter 19 about the nobleman that was going away and he was gonna be gone for a long time. He's gonna receive his kingship and come again. Well, this parable here has some similarities, but it is totally different. This king isn't going to come back this time at this point. No, he's sending ahead his servants to be able to check on the crop, to be able to check on the harvest. Look what it says here as Jesus continues this parable in verse 10. Now at vintage time, the owner of the vineyard sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he, he sent another servant and they beat him also. They treated him shamefully. They sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third. But they wounded him also and they cast him out. See, the problem is, is the wicked servants, these vine dressers, 
They don't want to have anything to do with the king. They don't want to have anything to do with the king's representatives at all. Three different representatives, all three met the same fate. The first one came in, they beat him, they sent him away empty-handed. The second one came in, they beat him also, they treated him shamefully, they sent him away empty-handed. The third one, they wounded him also and cast him out. Wouldn't you love to be the fourth guy? You know, you're kind of wondering, oh man, he's not going to send me, is he? No, the king changed his plan. The king now, instead of sending his armies in, which he had every right to do, you realize he had every right then to go in and send forces against these vine dressers. But that wasn't the heart of the king. He tried this other option, verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him in order that the inheritance might be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Interesting here in this parable, they cast the king's beloved son out of the garden or out of the vineyard. That's even a fulfillment of the law dealing with the sacrifice for sin. Back in Leviticus chapter 4, a very clear picture that the sacrifice had to be taken out of the camp to be, again, used as the sacrifice. And then after the, from, from, the, from the message in Leviticus 13, the writer of Hebrews touches on that in reference to Christ. In Hebrews chapter 13, not taking too much of a wild rabbit trail here, but he says the bodies of those animals, those whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin, are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the camp. The hill called Golgotha. Calvary, the place of the skull, the place where Jesus was crucified was outside the city gates of Israel. And so when Jesus is giving this parable, it's interesting that he brings that very point in. Verse 15 says, so they cast that beloved son out of the vineyard and then they killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He's gonna come and he's gonna destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. These priests and these scribes, they've been hearing this parable and they understand Israel being a, a vineyard uh, so many times, so many illustrations of that within the Old Testament. And then they heard what the king or what the owner of the vineyard was going to do, that he was going to, again, send in forces and he's going to come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And their response was, certainly not. No way. He looked at him and he said, then what then is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Interesting here, Jesus is quoting from Psalm 118. When we looked at the triumphant or triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem, the people along the sides of the road, they were crying out and proclaiming the words of Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, save now. Well, part of that 118 is this. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone.
Learning more about Jesus is the single most important thing we can do as Christians. As we carefully consider how Jesus lived, we see beautiful examples that can apply to our lives. Though the entire Bible is rich with symbols and images that point to Jesus, the Gospels are grand central station for who Jesus is. Join us each day as Pastor David teaches through the Gospel of Luke. You can get a free copy of today's teaching at our website. Simply log on to theopenword.com. That's theopenword.com. Although the open word is a huge blessing, we pray that it's not your only source for the teaching of the Word of God. It's our hope that you're attending a church that teaches God's Word from beginning to end. Here's Tracy with more information about our service times here at Calvary Chapel Casa Grande. Maybe you're listening right now in Casa Grande and you don't have a home church. We want to take this time to invite you to join us for worship. We meet Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. at 6.30 p.m. every Wednesday and Saturday. For more information, call us at 520-836-9676. That's 520-836-9676. Or log on to theopenword.com and follow the link to the church website. Thanks, Tracy. Well, that's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Please join us next time for the next edition of The Open Word.